How can humanitarian observers and social justice advocates excuse the crackdown on hundreds of members of the Muslim Brotherhood by the Egyptian military government? Is the Muslim Brotherhood a proxy of U.S. and Western interests? Is Egypt at risk of moving in the same trajectory of destabilization that has engulfed Syria and has threatened to destroy Libya? What are the risks to peaceful protesters and even innocent bystanders who get caught up in mass arrests? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we will hear a rare defense of the Egyptian government's actions from Tony Cardellucci, Bangkok-based geopolitical researcher and writer. And we will hear a rare interview with John Grayson, a Canadian filmmaker and social justice activist who was part of a mass arrest and detained without charges in an Egyptian prison for 50 days. On today's program, Egyptian death sentences, human rights travesty or price of freedom. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 2nd, 2014. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Not a single major newspaper nor any national news broadcast has ever reported that on February 6, 1985, a jury in Miami concluded that the CIA was involved in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. This is remarkable, if only because the verdict came in a court case featuring two international celebrities, Watergate burglar E. Howard Hunt perhaps the most infamous CIA operative in history, and his courtroom nemesis, attorney Mark Lane. Miss Lawrence testified that on November 21, 1963, the day prior to the JFK assassination, she arrived in Dallas in a two-car caravan from Miami. Accompanying her were several CIA operatives, armed with telescopic rifles, including Frank Sturgis, who, years later, participated with Hunt in the Watergate burglary. Later, Sturgis told her how big the mission had been, the assassination of President Kennedy. That is from the article, Miami Jury, CIA Involved in JFK Assassination by The Spotlight, posted May 1st. Comparing Vladimir Putin's address to the Russian Federation on March 18, 2014, dealing with the Crimean referendum and associated crisis with Obama's March 23rd address in Brussels is no contest. Putin wins, hands down. This, I believe, is a result of the fact that Russia is under serious attack and threat 
by the United States, which is a still-expanding empire that cannot tolerate serious rivals and actually turns them into enemies that must resist. This is mainly Russia and China, and U.S.-NATO actions have succeeded in transforming Russia from a virtual client in the Yeltsin era to the enemy and aggressor today. It is amazing to see how the mainstream media and intellectuals can fail to see the security threat to Russia posed by the Western underwritten change in government in Kiev and the continuity in the extension of this threat in NATO's steady expansion on Russia's borders. And the double standard on aggression in international law is breathtaking. That's from the article, Kerry Obama Putin. The fool, the demagogue, and the former KGB colonel. Russia is under serious attack and threat by the U.S. By Edward S. Herman, posted April 30th, originally appearing at zcom.org. The campaign in Ukraine is simply part of the ongoing U.S. proxy war for the vast resources of Russia. Nothing more, nothing less. Of that very same proxy war, stages of which have been so many places and nations, real ones, that happen to be a barrier one way or another. Syria, Libya, Yugoslavia and its derivatives, Bulgaria, Romania, Georgia, Chechnya, Afghanistan, Iraq, the Baltic republics, you could name at least as many more. This aggressive policy of the U.S. and NATO is accompanied by empty rhetoric without any relevance to the facts of the matter. NATO itself has lost the justification and the purpose of its existence and should have been dissolved by the time its adversary, the Warsaw Pact, has self-dissolved. The fight against NWO is picking up momentum, but attaining victory will require united effort by all dissident groups internationally. Ukrainians' fight today is simply a part of the worldwide opposition against NWO. That is from the article, Explaining Ukraine... History, Nationhood, and the New World Order by Ivan Darakchev, posted April 30th. The economic stability achieved during the Reagan administration was shattered by Wall Street greed. Wall Street threatened corporations with takeovers if the corporations did not produce higher profits by relocating their production of goods and services for American markets abroad. The lower labor costs boosted earnings and stock prices and satisfied Wall Street's cravings for ever more earnings, but brought an end to the rise in U.S. living standards except for the mega-rich. Americans will take endless abuse and blame some outside government for their predicament. Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, China, Russia, such an insouciant and passive people are ideal targets for looting, and their economy, hollowed out by looting, is a house of cards. That is from the article, The U.S. Economy is a House of Cards, by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted April 30th, originally appearing at paulcraigroberts.org. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu.
Last August, two Canadians, emergency room doctor Tarek Lubani and filmmaker and York University professor John Grayson, had planned a trip to Gaza where the doctor's volunteer work would be filmed. They had a stopover in Cairo. While in Cairo, they got caught up in a mass arrest and found themselves incarcerated for several weeks without charge. The arrest became a huge national and international story. Eventually, the two men were freed and returned to Canada. Grayson, also a Palestine solidarity activist, was invited to speak in Winnipeg last March. I had a chance to interview him about his ordeal, his experiences in prison, and how he makes sense of what happened to him. We arrived, we found ourselves in the middle of the what became known internationally as the Rabbah Square Massacres, where thousands were arrested, 600 were killed by the army in cold blood, you know, army firing on unarmed citizens. The protest uh, called for the 16th to protest the massacres of Rabbah Square um, meant that we couldn't get out of Cairo. So we were stuck in our hotel. The the um, call for the demonstration in Ramsey Square was about a couple kilometers away, so we thought we would go and carefully check it out. Then the call of Dr. Doctor meant that Tark Hippocratic Oath had to respond and so we became in fact the first to be directed to the mosque uh, on the square um, which was about half a kilometer from the police station where the violence was occurring. The army was opening fire on a peaceful demonstration. The, the injured and wounded were brought back to this mosque which became a temporary field hospital and Tarek had to click into doctor role I was asked to document the wounded with my camera, um, both for practical forensic reasons of documenting the faces and the wounds, and then sadly, as very sadly, shockingly, as the doctors weren't able to save lives, document the dead. Um, And we saw about 40 people die that day in the mosque. We spent the entire time in the mosque, in this temporary field hospital. So we were far from the demonstration, far from the army shooting the the, the public, shooting the people. Um, but as we were making our way through what had become a quiet aftermath um, of post-demonstration, making our way through the, the evening, uh, trying to get back to our hotel, we couldn't figure out a way to get through the, the police cordon that had been set up between us and the river where our hotel was. So we were asking the army, how do we get back to our hotel? And that's when they decided to arrest us. And for the first couple days, we really thought, this will pass. They'll realize it's a joke. They'll realize it's a mistake. Our passports are going to guarantee us, uh, you know, we'll be released with an apology. And 50 days later, we realized how wrong we were. It's not like you guys just went into a place where you had no business being. I mean, it was this is a place where the injured were being brought to be treated. Exactly. I mean, as I said, the, we 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 were joining, uh, going going out to witness a peaceful demonstration that had been called to protest army violence. Um, there, and it was unarmed citizens. We got to know our our fellow cellmates well, and the majority of them were out to their first demonstration. They'd never been on a demonstration before. They'd never spoken up or stood up for rights of any sort. But they felt the outrage of the massacres of the two days before 
something had to be done. They had to. They they were they were called to duty. They were called to speak out, and they felt they had to stand up and be counted. So they were peaceful demonstrators joining a demonstration for the first time and for their troubles. Some of them are still in jail to this day, five months later. Okay. Now this is a. There was a mass arrest and. Uh, could you talk to us, tell us a bit about the experience of, of where you were brought and, and where, what happened at that point? The, it, it's probably easiest to compare it for Canadians to the mass roundup that happened at the G20 where peaceful protesters likewise were just pulled in off the streets, famously kettled, entrapped. Uh, anyone wearing a black handkerchief or a black kerchief was uh, rounded up and thrown in jail. Of course, the huge difference being pretty well everyone got out within a couple days. Um, and the army, it, you know, our army did not open fire. Our police forces, whatever other injustices were perpetuated, didn't open fire and slaughter people. Um, so the the um, analogy to the G20 runs the risk of being trite because of just how serious this massacre was that we witnessed. Um, nevertheless, I think it followed the same pattern as roundups the world over, um, past and present. States, regimes need to terrorize populations by doing mass roundups. And you throw people in jail and you throw ridiculous charges into the headlines, and that cows people. It makes people hesitate before they join a demonstration. Of the, of the 600 arrested that day, 12 were internationals. They lined us up, Tarek and I, at the police station. This was during the, over, the first overnight incarceration before they took us to Torah Prison. They lined us up in front of a video camera with a Syrian guy and said, you are three terrorists, what do you have to say for yourselves? And it was clearly filming it for the nightly news. And we thought it was a, the biggest joke, uh, like the idea that Tarek and I, a doctor, a filmmaker, Canadians, you know, I wasn't going to come out to them as being a queer filmmaker, but um, the idea of us being terrorists was just so ludicrous. And they, and then the Syrian guy, we didn't, we just felt for him. It, it was like we felt really bad for the guy because he'd been beaten very badly. We didn't find out really much about him until weeks later when we ran into him in the exercise yard and we were really happy to see him and know that he was okay and it turned out he was a grade school teacher an Egyptian grade school teacher who uh, taught grade threes in Cairo and happened to have a Syrian mother and so that's how desperate the army was constructing their narrative of international terrorists by uh, grabbing a grade three that's how desperate a grade three teacher a gay filmmaker a London Ontario doctor that's as good as they could do in terms of international terrorists. It kind of reminds me, like I, I reflect now on uh, the people who were rounded up in Afghanistan and taken to Guantanamo, you know, because the, the assumption for anyone following mainstream media and maybe even a lot of independent media is that these were people who were, I suppose, credibly accused of doing something, uh, uh, you know, untoward. I mean, is that something that might have occurred to you? Absolutely. I think... A mandatory viewing for all citizens everywhere is Road to Guantanamo by Michael Winterbottom, which documents the case of three um, English guys rounded up and thrown into Guantanamo from Afghanistan. Three English guys who, in fact, weren't even in the country for the crimes they were accused of. 
their only way, the only way they were freed was eventually because of the testimony of their parole officer in England who testified that, no, in fact, they were weekly reporting to their parole officer. And that's what finally got them out. But that took months and years. And this, the, the pattern of this sort of wrongful accusation and the will of a public to believe mass media headlines and the, and the collusion of the mass media in terms of repeating these lies that regimes, whether they're American regimes or Egyptian regimes or Canadian regimes, we see the lies that the Canadians tell about our prisoners all the time. And we don't have to go much further than Omar Khadr's case to think to make the connections. Okay, so, so John Grayson, you uh, found yourself in a cell for 50 days, and the conditions in that cell were quite um, onerous. You want to explain a little bit, you know, describe how those conditions, uh, how you experienced those conditions. Mid-August in Cairo is pretty warm, um, dry heat as opposed to the sort of humidity we're used to in Toronto, so that was nice, but uh, hot and when we lost power, we really felt the, the pain of the heat because the ceiling fans would cut out and the little bit of breeze that would sneak in through the high windows, windows right up at the ceiling, almost no breeze came through. Um, 38 men squeezed into a 3-meter by 10-meter cell, uh, a toilet in the, a squat toilet in the corner with a tap. So that's the broad strokes. We're sleeping on the concrete and... Though there were some blankets, there was about ten blankets for the thirty-eight of us to share, but they were they were hot to sleep on. So sleeping on the concrete was actually cooler, and the bugs were bad. Um, but you sort of get used to. It's amazing what you get used to, and I think the thing the the thing that really is remarkable was how all thirty-eight worked very hard to keep it clean. So we would wash down the floor twice a day in preparation for our meals because there's no furniture. We're, we're eating on the floor. We're eating, sleeping, everything on the floor. And so to eat is to receive the more or less buckets of food, bu- a bucket of rice, a bucket of beans, a bucket of sometimes uh, eggplant or fresh tomatoes from the prison garden, um, blocks of cheese, and pita. And there's no utensils, there's no plates. You're eating with your hands. So the potential for dysentery is just through the roof. But somehow that collective commitment to cleanliness and really it, it, it got to the point of ridiculousness where we would, our cleaning committees would fight over who got to scrub down the floor. Like we were all eager to do stuff. And partly it's just because of boredom. But partly there, there also was a collective will to not descend into anarchy or illness. Yeah. And do you, you all got along really well? I mean, it, it those sounds like those sorts of conditions could have uh, best friends at each other's throats, but you managed to uh, maintain a, a well, good rapport? Best friends and family members. There was all sorts of family connections, brothers and brothers-in-law and fathers and sons. uh, networks of family members uh, throughout the group, all of whom, as I said earlier, were um, demonstrators who'd come out to join a peaceful protest. The vast majority had never been politically active in their lives. Only three were Muslim Brotherhood members. Uh, Some were quite 
reactionary, but felt they had to speak out in terms of um, protesting this terrible massacre by the army. So, um, yeah, the potential for stress, the, the stress leading to violence was acute. Um, sleep deprivation, uh, we're eating two meals a day together. And I have to say, we were getting enough food. It wasn't, there, there wasn't an issue there. And when the family visits kicked in and we started to get chicken once a week, for, in, for instance, then we were getting a range of food and a range of, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty tolerable. Um, the fights, the fights, as I've said, were primarily over space. You know, you, you're, you're using up my three inches of space and it's, there's so little space to go around and, for 50 days, I think it's accurate to say that I was never not in physical proximity touching another gu- another one of the guys. Whether I'm standing or sitting or, or sleeping, you're always in physical contact with somebody. You eventually took the only uh, form of protest that was available for you. You went on a hunger strike. How did that... Uh, how did you arrive at that... Uh, particular decision, if I might put it that way. Getting, a, getting front page coverage in the Western media didn't matter. New York, New York, we're on the front page of the New York Times and it made not a bit of difference. Did it make a bit of difference in Egypt? Not, not at all. And this is what we would, you know, this is what we would be informed of in the, in the weekly visits. You know, your, your international news all over the world, The Guardian, The New York Times, The Globe and Mail, it makes no difference at all. Al Jazeera makes no difference at all. Egyptian, the Egyptian local media is what counts. And they were working, uh, all our activists, all our advocates were working actively trying to achieve that same goal. We decided the hunger strike would be um, the, the thing we could contribute, the one only thing we could contribute. That in our hunger strike statement, which we were able to smuggle out through our lawyer and uh, get it, get publicized, and so we were able to publicize uh, how we'd been beaten. That became a huge issue for the Egyptian government. That for the first time, that when that accusation was sounded, like for us it was old news. That's like oh, that's weeks ago. You beat us. You beat us the first day we came here. Who cares? But in fact, that became crucial to the mobilization to get us out. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, the crucial things which led to our release were the arrival of Tarek's dad and then through a set of coincidences how he was able to actually speak to the cabinet um, through one of the ministers and lobby them directly and actually get Sisi's ear on the case saying, release my son, release my son the doctor. Um, What were the, the coincidences? The coincidences were that um, the same at one in the morning, the, some vice ministers from the Ministry of the Interior showed up and said, "Show us your boot print on your back." So they're coming. At, it, it was quite scary to come to our cell at one thirty in the morning, and suddenly our cell is full of these guys in suits. And then they stayed through the night at the prison because it's, Cairo's not that safe to travel around in at any time, but especially at night. They stayed overnight and were there in the morning when Tarek's dad, Mr. Lubani, arrived for the family, the, the, uh, our visit with him. And so he was able to shake their hands and corner them in the, in the 
uh, head office of the prison where they were hosting him because you know he's a he's a visiting Canadian. They don't just throw him in the regular visiting hall. Um, so he was introduced to these vice ministers and knew Egyptian culture, Egyptian society from having done his his uh, medical degree there when he was a student. And so he was able to access that, you know, just work the room. He's, a, he's an incredibly charismatic and very thoughtful, smart guy. And uh, he was able to get their ear and say, make, they, he got he got them to make promises to him and by the end of that visit they said your son will be flying home with you next week and they were he was he was correct being in prison i mean they can do strange things to your psychology your emotions uh, what were some of the dark periods that uh, you know maybe things that you st- start to remember maybe have some flashbacks anything along those lines were there periods where you're thinking I'm going to die here or were you always hopeful three 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 times come to mind one was when our detention was extended again to 30 days um, and that was that just plunged me into a big depression. I just sort of lay down on the floor, and the only, the only, there was no place you could hide. <laughs> so the only, pl- the only thing you could do was sort of like lie on the floor, and you're in everybody's way when you lie on the floor, and everyone else is sitting up, visiting, passing their time of day. Um, and I, I canceled all my classes, my English classes that I was teaching. Um, so that was one day. Another day, another time was when Tark and I were. Uh, debating the hunger strike and the the standard practice in the Egyptian prison is to put throw you in solitary if you go on an, on what's considered an official hunger strike and I was terrified of solitary because for all the obvious reasons um, and really didn't want to uh, go forward with the hunger strike and so we were able to ne- negotiate a way where we could go forward with our version of a hunger strike and not be thrown in solitary. And um, it was there would there were days where I really felt like this is going to drag on for years. It was there was there were scenarios, and you know, I, I look at Mohammed Fami's case. I look at the other five hundred and forty guys still locked up without charges, and I think we are we were extraordinarily lucky to get out after fifty days. Won the lottery. <laughs> Um, is there a specific story <clears throat> among your the people you were with uh, that, that that particularly you you want to communicate to the rest of the world? You know, uh, an individual uh, case, you know, maybe a, a certain memory that that really stands out in your mind that maybe helps symbolize the whole scenario or solidifies it in your imagination. I, we became extraordinarily close with these guys, and it's inevitable when you're with people 24-7 in such close circumstances. Um, and I was struck by continually acts of extraordinary kindness. It's, I mean, part of it's cultural where it's just this generosity with food. You're always, the, the first instinct is always to offer the last piece of bread, pita bread or cheese or, or tomato to your neighbor so that sort of kindness that's the the sort of uh 
care of the collective, where everyone was working very hard to ensure that we all made it through another day together. Um, these were these were extraordinarily ordinary people: a blacksmith, students, professors, uh, people working in HR for American corporations, a guy who worked for Expedia uh, as a call center operator. Ordinary Egyptians with ordinary stories and families and all the fears and uh, ordinariness of everyday life. One guy, one guy who I think of a lot because of Mohammed's case is Ibrahim. He was a very he's a well known journal, Egyptian journalist. He was called back to uh, Egypt post coup by a friend who ran a talk show and Ibrahim was saying I'm, I'm scared to come back what if I what if the army come to get me I've been very critical in my writing of the army and this talk show host says no 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 it'll be fine I'll guarantee your safety you can be on my show we'll interview you you'll be fine come on back he comes back he's on the show the police are waiting for him at the door and he realizes he's been set up by his quote friend the host the talk show host and sold out and the talk show host did a deal with the army for whatever reasons. Ibrahim can only speculate, but he's been in. He's been locked up ever since, facing charges. Uh, he is facing terrorism charges, collaborating with the Muslim Brotherhood terrorist organization, very similar to Mohammed's case. And again, the number of, of journalists locked up is. A, it, it, if if you have to pick a single issue, there's one. Just the sheer number that the Egyptian regime is locked up. There's barely a journalist left standing. That was filmmaker and York University professor John Grayson speaking to me last March following a talk he gave in Winnipeg. For more background on Mr. Grayson and his ordeal in Egypt, please visit the website tarekandjohn.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. In recent days, human rights organizations, media outlets, and Western governments have expressed shock and outrage over the mass sentencing of over 680 supporters of deposed Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi. The sentence was in response to the killing of a single police officer last summer during an attack on a police station. That attack was ostensibly prompted by a violent crackdown on pro-Morsi sit-ins, which left hundreds dead. This brings to more than 1,100 the number of people sentenced to death under this same judge. At least one U.S. Senator, Patrick Leahy from Vermont, is pledging to withhold $650 million in military aid to the Egyptian government as punishment for what he saw as the government's flaunting of human rights, quote-unquote. The Egyptian judiciary has also banned the so-called April 6th Youth Movement, an organization which played a key role in the 2011 overthrow of former President Hosni Mubarak. Devoid of context, the actions of the Egyptian judiciary seem like cruel and unusual punishment. But is there a context in which the actions of Egyptian judicial authorities is sensible? 
One writer and frequent contributor to the global research website thinks so. He goes by the pen name Tony Cartolucci and is based in Bangkok, Thailand. He identifies himself as a geopolitical researcher and writer. The Global Research News Hour sought an interview with Mr. Cartolucci this past week in the wake of the recent onerous verdicts. Mr. Cartolucci does not grant audio or video interviews. We were, however, able to secure an email exchange. Bringing that email conversation to radio, Global Research contributor John Wilson voiced the questions. I voiced Mr. Cartolucci's written responses. Here is that conversation, which took place the morning of May 1st. Much of the media, including progressive alternative media outlets like Democracy Now! in the U.S., are portraying the mass death sentences in Egypt as outrageous violations of human rights and the basic norms of due process. The human rights watchdog Amnesty International was cited as calling the mass death sentences handed out, quote, a grotesque example of the shortcomings and the selective nature of Egypt's justice system. In your recent writings on Egypt, you seem conciliatory toward the military regime taking these actions. Your thesis seems to be that these steps are being taken to mitigate the kind of foreign-sponsored disasters that have befallen Syria and Libya. I'll give you a chance to develop that argument in a minute, but first I wanted you to clarify your views about the steps taken by the Egyptian authorities. You call the military regime's harsh crackdown on Morsi supporters logical. Does that mean you believe them to be acceptable or defensible? Answer. Clearly the situation in Egypt has been poorly framed to begin with. The Muslim Brotherhood's history is one of violence, foreign-backed subversion, and the triggering of costly, protracted, armed conflicts that have taken their toll on the respective nations they have been active within. In Algeria, the Black Decade, for instance, cost the life of some 200,000 civilians. In Syria, the confrontation between the government then led by Hafez al-Assad and the Muslim Brotherhood, by the West's own accounts, led to sectarian extremists fleeing the country and forming the beginnings of what many now call al-Qaeda. Therefore, the Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization. It is dangerous. It is armed. And worst of all, it is funded by foreign interests who seek to use their fanatical support base to destabilize and destroy existing political orders across the Arab world. From this framing, it is very clear that the government in Egypt was quite logical in moving against them as they did. While the Western media covers up the violent nature of the Muslim Brotherhood, leaving question marks as to how hundreds from Egypt's security forces are being killed in Egypt and to observers who recall how a similar scenario unfolded in Syria in 2011. See the beginning of widespread armed militancy and logical steps being made to counter it. Is this, in your view, essentially a lesser of two evils argument? Answer, no. A nation has the right to protect itself from foreign aggression, be it clearly marked military forces marching over their borders or proxy militants being armed and funded within their midst. Ideally, Egypt should commit to due process and proportional punishments as it wages its war against this foreign-backed militant front, but in reality, it may not be able to, even if it wanted to. To claim a government operating in the wake of three years of foreign-backed political destabilization that has left thousands dead and the country teetering on the edge of a Syrian-style conflict is evil, or even the lesser of two evils, would be poor judgment. 
Your point seems to be that the Muslim Brotherhood is acting as a proxy for U.S. interests, undermining the Egyptian military government. According to the same pattern that witnessed the overthrow of the Gaddafi government in Libya and is undermining the Assad government in Syria, what evidence is there that the Muslim Brotherhood is advancing the interests of the West? Answer: The evidence is clear. The United States, starting in 2008, began paving the road for their political comeback. The Arab Spring in 2011 was admittedly the work of the National Endowment for Democracy, as stated in the New York Times, and verified by NED's own documentation of their work. The protest in Tahrir Square, while led by presentable opposition party members like Mohammed El Baradei, consisted almost entirely of protesters mobilized by the Muslim Brotherhood. Again, admitted by the West's own reports at the time. The violence that swept the nation from Cairo to Alexandria was carried out by the Muslim Brotherhood. Buildings were ransacked and burned. Police killed. All done by armed groups. The only organization with both the means and the track record of carrying out such violence is the Muslim Brotherhood. The West's agenda was clearly to oust Mubarak, and in that regard, the Muslim Brotherhood demonstrably advanced their interests. Additionally, we saw as early as 2007, the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia assembling a united sectarian front to wage regional war against Iran and its allies in Syria and Lebanon. A war now openly playing out in Syria and, to a lesser extent, in Lebanon. In Seymour Hersh's 2007 report, "The Redirection." The U.S. was admittedly funding the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria for this very purpose. The goal of placing the Muslim Brotherhood into power in Egypt would expand this sectarian front into one of the largest, most powerful Arab nations in the Middle East, North African region, and pose a formidable threat to Iran and its arch of influence. Could you explain the background of the Muslim Brotherhood and how it came to be formed? Is the Muslim Brotherhood a creation of Western interests, like the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, or was it an autonomous entity that is being exploited or co-opted or otherwise utilized by the West to further its aims? Answer: There will be debates on how and who created the Muslim Brotherhood. What it has been used for over the decades, however, is not up for debate. It has been a wedging force across Arab nations, arresting progress and dividing nations against themselves, leaving them weak, vulnerable, and susceptible to foreign exploitation and meddling. Whether it was from the very beginning or somewhere shortly thereafter that the British and eventually the Americans began backing the Muslim Brotherhood to industrialize this regional divide and conquer methodology is irrelevant. Today, they are admittedly funding and arming networks either directly controlled by the Brotherhood or in league with them. This can be, be seen transparently in Syria and increasingly so in Egypt. While many are confused about the nature of the Brotherhood and the seemingly heavy-handed reaction of the government in Cairo today, a year from now, if the West is successful, we will be united against yet another front. Of U.S.-backed and armed sectarian extremists plying their deadly trade in yet another Arab nation, seeking regime change, and with no question in anyone's mind as to which side the West is on. So, what exactly was the Muslim Brotherhood's involvement in Syria? Answer: 
Let me quote Seymour Hersh's prophetic 2007 article, The Redirection. His article stated, quote, There is evidence that the Bush administration's redirection strategy has already benefited the Brotherhood. The Syrian National Salvation Front is a coalition of opposition groups whose principal members are a faction led by Abdul Halim Khadam, a former Syrian vice president who defected in 2005, and the Brotherhood. Unquote. Hirsch would go on to explain how the U.S. and Saudi Arabia were funding the Brotherhood and providing them with diplomatic support and how it was determined that if the West wanted to move against Damascus, the Brotherhood would be the ones to work with. We must keep in mind that the redirection was the U.S. strategy of funding and arming sectarian extremists to begin conflict with Hezbollah in Lebanon, overthrow the government of Syria, and confront Iran. Clearly, the Muslim Brotherhood was the foundation upon which this conflict was engineered in Syria. The article would also mention that Egypt was expected to be unsettled by this policy. That is because while some may try to claim the Syrian and Egyptian Brotherhoods are two different entities, the Egyptian government knew they were not. Bolstering the Brotherhood in Syria would be bolstering it in Egypt and elsewhere. I recommend everyone read Hirsch's 2007 article. It will wake people up seeing how this was all firmly laid out and that the Muslim Brotherhood played such a prominent role in the West's planning, this under a so-called conservative U.S. president who willfully sought to prop up and even expand the Brotherhood to advance U.S. ambition across the Arab world. What evidence is there that the Arab Spring was foreign-sponsored, or was it, in your view, an autonomous uprising that was co-opted by the West? Answer. It was not autonomous. Starting in 2008, the leaders of the mobs in Tahrir Square were sitting in New York City in front of Hillary Clinton getting training, cash, and marching orders alongside other activists that would lead or try to lead similar uprisings in their respective countries. So obvious was it that the U.S. was behind the Arab Spring that the New York Times in an article titled U.S. Groups Helped Nurture Arab Uprisings admitted that opposition groups were receiving training and financing long before the protests began. Other admissions would trickle out, including by AFP, which admitted up to 5,000 protesters from different countries received cash, training, and equipment up to two years before the protests began. There is nothing autonomous about any of it. I've extensively documented the long lead-up to the Arab Spring in an article titled 2011, Year of the Dupe. I am confident that when readers follow the myriad of links to the organizations that helped facilitate the subversion, there will be no question left in their mind over whether the Arab Spring was an artificially engineered geopolitical ploy or not. If the West likes autocratic governments which protect their resources and other strategic interests, then please explain the overthrow of Mubarak, which I understand to be the thrust of the Arab Spring in Egypt. Mubarak was friendly to the U.S. interests, was he not? Answer. The overthrow of Mubarak mirrors the overthrow of Iraq's autocratic government led by Saddam Hussein. While the West enjoys autocratic regimes, it enjoys them only insofar as they help them advance their agenda, not only domestically, but regionally and globally. While Mubarak 
may have been making concessions domestically and even partially across the region, the confrontation with Iran the West has been pushing for appeared to be beyond Mubarak's interest. We'll never know how Mubarak would have handled Egyptian-Syrian relations as the West's war with Damascus escalated and pressure was put on Arab nations to cut ties with the Assad government. But we do know that what Morsi's policy was to sever all ties and call for regime change in tandem with the West. One of the first orders of business of the military-led government in Cairo after ousting Morsi was re-establishing ties with Syria. Mubarak was friendly to U.S. interests as a matter of self-preservation, but only to a point. What the U.S. needed from him and his confidants was beyond their ability or interest to deliver. Just like Saddam, who had been an ally of U.S. interests at one time, the tides turned and regime change found its way into the cards. Was there an inevitability to the revolutions across the Middle East and North Africa? Was Arab Spring essentially an effort by the West to control inevitable revolutions against tyrannical governments? Answer. The leaders of these tyrannical governments do not wake up each day and arbitrarily decide to be tyrannical. The West is a matter of systematic imperialism that can be traced back to its confrontation with the Ottoman Empire has intentionally sown economic ruination, social division, and interregional war across the Middle East as a means of dividing and conquering. Confronting armed political fronts like the Muslim Brotherhood or maintaining order with belligerent nations like Israel on or near one's borders requires a heavy hand. The West didn't co-opt the conditions within which their engineered destabilization would flourish. They created these conditions in the first place. One needs only look at the Brookings Institution's 2009 document, Which Path to Persia, where U.S. policymakers openly conspire to sow the seeds of discontent by instituting crippling sanctions, arming opposition groups, and practicing covert subversion to undermine the government in Iran and create conditions that favor unrest and dissatisfaction across the Iranian population. They conspired to do so and have visibly done so in Iran and elsewhere. In what ways is Iran's establishment as a relatively independent regional power in 1979 significant or pivotal in terms of U.S. military, covert, and other maneuvers in the Middle East? Answer. Iran presents a countervailing force in the Middle East whose influence stretches from Afghanistan to the Mediterranean Sea and many places in between. Its escape out from under Western hegemony in the late 1970s has been a source of ire for the West ever since. It could be argued that much of what the West has done since then has been attempts to encircle and contain Iran and by proxy Russia, who has and is assisting it in many of its regional ambitions the most apparent now being Syria. 
Another opposition group that has come under fire from the military government in Egypt is the April 6th Youth Movement. Who are they? Are they a genuinely autonomous pro-democracy group, or do you see foreign involvement evident in their development as well? Answer. April 6th was the opposition group sitting in New York City, listening to Hillary Clinton, getting funds and training from the U.S. State Department, and receiving the full backing of the Western media monopoly from January 2011 onward. So clearly, there is nothing genuine about them. They are a creation and perpetuation of American interests in Egypt, and the fact that they were co-occupying Tahrir Square with the Muslim Brotherhood should be a wake-up call for those still laboring under the delusion that the Brotherhood is somehow some sort of legitimate anti-Western front. It could be argued that without the Muslim Brotherhood's numbers and armed factions menacing Egyptian security forces in early 2011, April 6th would have been a brief and distant memory few would recall. You seem to be pointing to Western-sponsored popular movements, including colored revolutions as a staple in establishing Western control or influence in geostrategically critical parts of the world. How long has the U.S. and other Western states applied this formula? Do we have official documentation of the West's application of this as an actual tool of geostrategy? Answer. Backing rabble within a targeted nation for the purposes of overthrowing and replacing a political order is as old as empire itself. The United States had attempted with limited success to politically reorder much of South America after World War II with similar methods, and more recently, the Western media has admitted in retrospect that movements like the Ukrainian Orange Revolution in 2004 were entirely the work of U.S. cash and training. The closest thing to general documentation regarding this methodology is Gene Sharp's book, From Dictatorship to Democracy, which, through U.S. Foundation funding, found its way into the hands of thousands of America's proxy revolutionaries. A more specific example that covers everything from both the creation of conditions favorable for unrest to the actual funding and arming of protesters to the use of covert provocations to tip off war should the destabilization fail is Brookings Institution's 2009 Witch Path to Persia report. It is lengthy, but again, will lay to rest any doubts or questions readers may have as to whether or not the U.S. really engages in this sort of insidious behavior. For very technical descriptions of the methods the U.S. uses to weaken, subvert, and replace extraterritorial political orders, one might read any of the numerous counterinsurgency manuals circulating online and throughout the various departments of the U.S. political and military establishment. The process of counterinsurgency works both ways, and upon reading U.S. materials on the subject, readers will instantly recognize the role of Western NGOs playing in slowly and insidiously overturning targeted political order as we has done in the lead-up to the Arab Spring. What about sectarian violence? Is this an incidental or planned outcome of these faux revolts? Answer? Divide and conquer is the maxim of building an empire. For those casually browsing headlines, they will conclude that Sunnis and Shias and other minority groups in the Arab world, including Jews and Christians, have been fighting since the beginning of time. In reality, these people have been peacefully coexisting for centuries. 
Sectarian violence is the result of faux theological groups like the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda intentionally fed a divisive and destructive ideology by extremist networks funded by Saudi Arabia, America's closest Arab ally. The sectarianism is meant to further weaken and undermine the source of strength of any given nation by dividing its people against one another when otherwise they would stand united against foreign aggression. While the means may be sectarian, the motivation is political. This could be seen most prominently in Iraq, where Sunnis and Shia had initially supported each other in some of the most pivotal battles against occupying Western forces, including the first sieges of Fallujah and Baghdad's Sadr city. Even as sectarian violence spiraled out of control later on during the occupation, prominent clerics from both sides pleaded for unity, calls that were intentionally drowned out by the Western media. What then is the geostrategic significance of Egypt to Western powers? Answer? Egypt is a huge country. It has a population of over 80 million. It is militarily strong and has significant geopolitical importance both due to its history and its geographical position. This includes its proximity to the Suez Canal and the fact that it straddles the Middle East and North Africa while sharing a border with the West's premier beachhead in the region, Israel. Transforming it into a sectarian extremist safe haven like neighboring Libya would pose a huge counterweight to Iran and its arch of influence. For that alone, it is significant and of great interest to the West. One can only imagine what the West could do if it were able to transform the Sinai or other regions into a Benghazi-like pipeline for terrorists headed to confront Iran, Syria, and Lebanon, or even Russia in its Caucasus region. A U.S.-sponsored military intervention in Syria appears to have been frustrated for the time being. Do you see other Western imperial defeats looming, or will the West recover their advantage? Answer. It appears that in Syria, the West has all but lost. The government in Damascus has made significant gains all the way up to the borders where foreign militants have been flowing in. Despite threats of further arming militants with sophisticated weapons, whatever the West could have sent the militants, they have done so already and without much success. The inability for the West to intervene directly in the conflict, even for the establishment of what they called limited buffer zones, is indicative of an overall weakening of their global influence abroad, as well as faltering trust and legitimacy at home. The West's failure in Syria is a sign of much wider and perhaps irreversible decline. Their initiative elsewhere, say Ukraine for example, seems to exist in ever briefer windows of opportunity, perhaps so brief that nothing can be accomplished. While world leaders like Russia's President Vladimir Putin enjoys immense popularity at home, Western leaders have never been so unpopular. To regain any sort of advantage would require first to recognize the faults that have brought the West to its current predicament, but when these faults include arrogance and megalomania, seeing anything becomes difficult, if not impossible. Assuming you are correct in your assessment of Western geopolitical maneuvering in Egypt, how do you see things playing out over the next few years? Will Egypt successfully defy the West, or will it end up like Libya or Syria or something else altogether? Answer. 
The speed at which the Egyptian military has moved may avert a protracted and destructive Libyan or Syrian-style conflict. Their disregard for the opinion of the international community means they either recognize a window of opportunity they must exploit or perceive weakness across the West, or perhaps a combination of both. For now, they have the advantage. What will most likely transpire is a protracted, low-intensity terrorist campaign aimed at the military in hopes of peeling away support within the government in Cairo and undermining popular support across Greater Egypt. Simultaneously, the West will attempt to lure Cairo into making concessions with the promise of stemming the bloodshed, improving ties, and through offering military and economic incentives. This would be the familiar carrot-and-stick formula the West has regularly employed elsewhere, aid being the carrot, foreign-funded terrorism, and economic ruination being the stick. Do you have any other thoughts about what's happening in Egypt that you'd like to bring attention to our listeners? Answer. To understand the future, we must understand the past. This requires tuning out the hysteria being broadcast about Egypt today and instead learning where the Muslim Brotherhood has come from, what it has done for the Arab world, what role it has played in the destruction of Syria, and what role it is playing in the increasing violence now unfolding in Egypt. We are watching the Arab Spring trying to replay itself in Egypt, minus the Tahrir Square crowds and skipping straight to the armed militants now ruling Libya and currently gutting Syria. The tired adage of those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it applies here. Only the history of the Arab Spring, of how it turned out to be a foreign engineered plot covering for long-planned militancy aimed at regime change favorable to Wall Street and London, is relatively fresh. Well, some people are going to fall for the same ploys yet again, especially those calling themselves journalists or analysts. It appears that leadership beyond the West's international order have decided they will not. That was the geopolitical researcher and writer known as Tony Cartolucci. An archive of Mr. Cartolucci's analyses can be found on the Global Research website. concludes our show. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across the country. The show can be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm and can be downloaded from the website globalresearch.ca. Many thanks this week to John Wilson for his help with the Tony Cartolucci interview. The transcript of that interview will soon be available on the Global Research website. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or comments about today's program, feel free to send your feedback to globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Join us again next week.